Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarna Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 82 of the podcast, the topic is the future of digital health AI. Our guest is Catherine Havasi, CEO and co-founder of Delong Health. In this conversation, we talk about patient experience and telehealth, personalizing digital health, and the AI space with ConceptNet, crowdsourcing for AI, word embeddings, transfer learning, multilingual natural language processing, or NLP, and machine learning and federated learning. We discuss chronic disease management and exciting applications such as health coaching, mHealth, chatbots, agent assist, augmentation, scaling personalizations, digital characters, and even avatars. We have some perspectives on the future. So Catherine, language models and AI at the Media Lab, was that something that Marvin Minsky really kind of honed in on and, and, and was sort of selling to you guys? Or was it fairly apparent at the time that that it was going to move in the direction of, or at least that uh, language models were becoming fruitful to computers? I think way back in, and especially the late 90s, we didn't really have the concept of a language model like we have today. And so I think, especially for folks who have been in AI a really long time, the idea that you could build something as automatic as a language model uh, received a lot of skepticism in the beginning. Like, especially there was this, this huge gap between the idea that you know you could learn connections between words through pattern matching and have that be the basis of anything. And I think the idea that magic come that data goes in one end, there's a magic box, and intelligence comes out the other end is something that pretty much everybody in in AI at the media lab at the time was was not terribly favorable to. And I think that there's a lot to be said for that. I think um, these are really deep learning language models are really great pattern recognition engines that really build the idea of how words relate to each other and what words mean. And I think those are bases, right? They are what you build on as you're building intelligence, but there's a lot more to it. When we started there was a real idea in the late 90s of what is called technically common sense. And this is a ridiculously silly sort of idea that everybody in the world knows something, right? We all have information about uh, how words in the world relate to one another. Um, and we all bring that to bear. And when we talk to somebody else, we assume they know the same thing. And that lets us communicate in a way that's fairly you know, fairly natural, right? Because we don't have to repeat ourselves all the time or explain things all the time. And I think that's something that's really quite important. Um, and that was something we started out with. And the idea, well, how can you give language model common sense was was sort of one of those issues in the beginning and bridging the gap between structured and, and more neural uh, models was something that at the time was really unheard of. But I think now people really believe that you have to build that bridge. And the reason they didn't think that it was relevant, was it that they didn't think it was possible? Because they, I mean, the, the two domains historically didn't really have anything to do with each other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a certain mm-hmm. sense, they, they they really were just two very parallel worlds. It's like, okay, you know, you are there are linguistic academic and that's a nice world mm-hmm. and that's the end of it. Or, or you work on computer science, Uh so the worlds didn't communicate. They didn't need to communicate. They had no reason to, perhaps. It was just two very distinct academic areas, if I'm correct. Yeah, and I think when we saw Google come out of Stanford, which were really one of the first cases where anybody knew what a computational linguist was or someone who did natural language processing, you know, I think Google went out there and they said, look, we got to get people to understand that you can use computers to better understand language at scale because we want to hire the people who go through the system and learn about it. And so so that, that's interesting. I've never really fully uh, grasped that, but you're saying that Google had a big hand in that just because, you know, people think of Google as a search engine, but they don't, but I guess that the linguistic turn is also extremely important there. I, I get that because, yeah. you know, what, what their model was trying to do was, uh, was to position w- words and search phrases. And so they had, they needed that expertise really, really badly. Okay. And when you think about it, 
remember when search engines came out now, I don't know if people are listening will remember like the beginning of search engines, but people used to talk to a search engine. They used to do things like ask the search engine, oh yeah, um, my cat is sick, or I would like to order a pizza or something like that to a search engine. Of course you would get crack results, right? Because that's not what it was looking for. But when we get new technology, we really want to interact with it in this way that's like talking to another person. And then there's yeah, this- I'm struggling a little bit with remembering all of the engines, but I, I remember at my university, we had they were all listed on the page and Hotbot, Alta Vista, right? All of these. And then Ask Jeeves was showing up at some point. And that, I think, is to your point, because those guys were saying, well, you have to have a human butler or an automatic butler. You, you're asking a live person. They were trying to really... Before they had the technology to it, they at least knew or thought they knew that uh, humans want to have an approximation of of uh, another human on the other side. Well, which is an interesting, I guess, sort of segue to this because we, we wanted to talk a little bit about sort of chatbots and that whole world. Why did it take so long? So you had this experience there at the Media Lab, which, you know, dates both of us, but definitely that's not, you know, it wasn't even five years ago. This was a long time ago in computer time. Um, And then it took an enormous amount of time, I would say, before chatbots again became anything. Because there was the idea that that would be a good idea. But then you actually had to implement something that even remotely is attractive to a human being uh, talking to. Can you just line up for us why that took so long and where are we now? And and I, because I know this is a topic where you're trying to now apply this to, to health, mm-hmm. but this concept of chatbots has now kind of come around almost full circle. It's out there in commercial implementations, you know, in Alexa and, and a lot of things. Yes. And I think the, that when you say, well, it's come around, I would say, I don't think we're there yet. Um, right. And then, I think there is a lot to be said about why we're not there yet and what's going on with that. I mean, I think we have always wanted to talk to a computer. I mean, uh, I, when I used to teach for years, I used to use the Star Trek five, you know, pick up the mouse, talk to the, you know, the whales and all that. And then eventually students stopped remembering that movie. And then I stopped making that joke because only the TA would laugh. And that was bad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then you're like, oops, 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 I uh, need, more, need more current cultural references. Um, and I think one of the things that ends up happening is um, there's this ability for chatbots to be really something that's very pre-programmed. So when chatbots came out in the beginning, um, you know, a lot of it was about let's anticipate every possible thing that a person can say and walk through a little bit of a tree where at each point you you sort of categorize what the user is saying and then move them in the direction of that tree. And in the beginning, it was all chit-chat, right? What's technically called a chit-chat agent, the idea that you want to make small talk with a computer. And as lovely as that is and as novel as that is for about five minutes after that, (laughs) you made small talk with a computer, you've had that life experience, you don't need to do that again. And so I think what needed to happen was use cases needed to, to come into being and people needed to get more comfortable with the idea of goal-based conversation. And when we saw Siri came out, now, as much as you struggled to think back to, to Hotbot and Alta Vista, hopefully people remember Siri a little bit clearer when that came out. People would talk to Siri in a very expressive way as well, just like they talked with the search engines. But very quickly you learned, one, you're not an idiot for talking to your phone on the street, which is a huge culture shift that had to happen. Uh, and two... You know, there are things that it's good at and things that it's bad at, but the things that it's good at, it makes much more efficient use of, you know, as a parent has free being able to talk to an Alexa, really good um, use case. And there's these compelling reasons why people start using it. And I think we're naturally drawn to uh, conversational interfaces. Um, There are, and then what really took off was in customer experience. And I think that became a huge driver for chatbots as a whole is the idea of the chatbot on the website. Tell, t- tell me a little bit about your, your experience there. So, you know, with Luminoso, you, you built a company that wasn't just about uh, customer experiences, but you definitely uh, did, did touch very much on that. And from what I understand, the opportunity that you guys saw there initially was, was you know, 
there were a lot of, or there always, you know, in large companies is a lot of conversation happening. And, and a lot of it is recorded for legal and other reasons, but it's just a bunch of conversations and it's data that's just sitting on some server uh, in, you know, waiting for a use case. And you guys found a use case for it. Tell, tell me a little bit, how did you discover that, that there even was all this data and, and how did you kind of uh, unroll that data and, and start making sense of it for, for organizations? At the Media Lab, we got really interested in working with market research firms and trying to understand their problem. I love small data problems. It's just something I'm very passionate about is how do we work with uh, places where you can't take Google's whole internet comes in the box sort of approach. And if you look at something like chocolate or even sense, you know, people talk about them in these wonderfully dynamic ways and you have only tiny amounts of data of people talking about them. And so we started looking at that. And at the time, marketing had qualitative marketing um, was falling be, following behind quantitative marketing because we still got this the first ability to to really understand what your ad spend got you in quant marketing, and that meant that when you walked into a CMO's office, everybody spent all of their time talking about quant marketing and never qual marketing, never never market research, never qualitative work because you couldn't put any proof to it. Um, and so programmatic ad buying was, was blowing up and nobody was looking at, you know, what the customer actually wanted. Uh, and so we basically had gone in and said, we want to be able to build a tool that helps people quantify qualitative marketing. And that was the initial Luminoso push. And as part of that, um, which is actually a great use case and a good business for a larger size business, but the answer is you do market research and then you wait six months and you do market research. So it's not exactly a SaaS model, but <laughs> you probably remember those days when we were like, okay, now what? Um, uh, but we started realizing that people would take data from the customer experience center and start putting it into the system to do qualitative marketing on it. So if you want to know why the razor broke, you go to the, the call center, you get a bunch of recordings of why the razor broke and you put them in the system and then you do cheap man's focus group. Um, and I think that's how we started learning that this data trope was there and that people weren't using it is because they were using it to essentially do market research on it. And we said, Hey, we could have use there as well. So that's interesting. And, and, you know, out of that, what kinds of use have companies you worked with, uh, made out of this data? What, what sort of discoveries did they make? I mean, give me some examples of things that you can discover in sort of random data that, that your clients, uh, you know, customers are calling in about. Yeah, I mean, from the Luminoso perspective, a lot of it was what problems with products are driving people to return things to stores? What problems with products are driving people to give you a low rating on NPS? You know, we had this really fun use case with a big box store where we helped them debug why everybody hated pre-ordering video games with them, which uh, I'll get into why I use this use case in a second, um, is because at night, after the pre-order party is done, everybody gave them terrible ratings. They had to process each pre-order as a return and then check out the video game, which took forever. So everybody was waiting in this line. And they had to combine data from a bunch of different verticals to actually come to this conclusion and fix the problem. Whereas probably if they talked to any store manager, they would have immediately fixed the problem. <laughs> well, all right. Well, at least now they had a complicated way of finding qualitative data. Well, you know how companies work, Catherine. Sometimes yes. it's not getting to the answer. That's the point. Yeah. It's just, can you justify the rationale while you're even uh -huh. acting? Because any action a company takes costs money. So you, yep. it's better to find an elaborate yeah. rationale than a simple rationale. Because if someone just said, hey, it's a problem, please fix it. It doesn't enter the, uh, you know, the, the vocabulary. Yeah. So, okay. So this is interesting. But in all of this work at Luminoso, you were making use of language model and natural language processing approaches, which, by the way, you know, it's just such a mouthful, natural language processing and NLP. Is that a monolithic, uh, you know, is that now a field that's clearly understood? Do people... In the field, do, do, do regular software engineers uh, have any idea what this is? Has it become a, a, a sort of a standard vocabulary by now? I think so. I definitely think more people know what you can do with NLP. They know what the power of that is. It's been in the popular press a lot recently. Um, so I think it's a really unknown thing, which helps. Um, but it also ends up in this 
the situation, especially with conversational agents that we see where for a while we ended up with every insurance company we talked to fell into one of two camps, one of which is conversational. I will never work. It will never do anything. Um, now, Luminoso never did conversational, but when, when you hear about it, you know, it'll never work. And the opposite camp is our competitors have a fully, you know, fully intelligent, completely automated customer service rep who could just talk to people. Can you bring me that tomorrow? Um, and, and so there's either the skepticism or the, you know, wild, it's not even optimism, right? It's just unreasonable expectations of what can be done with NLP. And to get back to language models, that's what really scares me, which is that there are real limitations on what can be done with the deep learning models, even the GPT-3s that you hear about that, that people worry about from AI on the news. Well, yeah. Cool. Tell me about that. The GPT-3, just to bring people up to speed, but it was this new uh, thing that was just released. Can you explain a little bit what it is and why people got so scared about it? Because there was this public scare that some automated bot had used this thing and... Yeah, what is the big deal about it and why is it much less of a deal than than kind of was the press? I think the press just needed a story at that point, right? Because no, didn't anyone really believe that the computers were coming after us? I think that whether or not the press needs a story and how they act and what's wrong with uh, attention economy plus news is a whole other podcast and really interesting stuff. But um, yes, I mean, I think that the the idea that oh, hey, we're watching AI generate what, and you know, anytime you do any of these things, it's all handpicked. And in a lot of the GPT-3, we pick the best one and send it out there. But it's relatively coherent. It sounds like a person talking, even if that person might be a little crazy, right? Or, or might not be completely coherent, right? That's the kind of thing that you get out of GPT-3. And I think people didn't really realize that that, that was something that a computer could do. Um, you know, and when we taught intro to NLP at MIT, one of the things that we ended up doing is using an old technique called a Markov chain. And so it would just learn a bunch of how different words come off next to each other in a big piece of writing. Like you could do Dickens or the Bible or all of Lord of the Rings. And then you could generate text that sounded like it came out of Lord of the Rings from a prompt. And that was fun. But this is just that taken to an incredibly different level. And yeah, and this was pretty recent because the release, yeah. I just looked this up, and the release was on June 11th, 2020, and it's called Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, but it is essentially what we've been talking about all along. It is a language model, and it was released by OpenAI. Yeah, and GPT-2, which was the thing that got a lot of press, was released a little bit earlier than that. GPT-3 is bigger, and they didn't want to release the model in the beginning because they were afraid it was going to keep used for nefarious ends, or that's what they said, which... A lot of people in the in, in AI were a little skeptical. You know, you can retrain something that looks like GPT-2 if you really know what you're doing at that point. And so it was like, well, what are you doing? Are you actually preventing something bad from happening? Or are you keeping people at universities that don't have a lot of GPUs from being able to use the language model, right? And, or are you causing there to be more press, right? And because they said that, there was a huge amount of press but now they've released everything, um, except they're actually commercializing the new version, so they don't release it to the public. They they are have a sales partnership, I think, through Microsoft with it yeah. right now. What do you think of OpenAI? So the whole idea there is is well, I guess, to be open about AI, which yeah. you know sounds kind of coherent and and important, right? I mean, then that's not a joke because there there, there yeah. is a big transparency debate here. So I don't know at what. At whatever point computers do become, uh, you know, responsible for important things, and to some extent, right, they are already in very niche domains, it uh -huh. is kind of important to know what the rules are that created a certain machine-based outcome that then becomes a real outcome. So, I, I, you know, that's uh, true. But um, is it really possible for one organization to have a hand in making the world of AI more open? I mean, the mandate sounds really, really good. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, a, I mean, I think that there are a lot of organizations that are working very hard to keep AI open. And I think that's an important thing. I think really one of the things they're interested in doing is initially for the mandate was around AI access. So making sure everybody has the ability to use powerful AI to do the things they want to do. And, you know, you can think about what happens if that doesn't happen, right? If, 
only Fortune 1000 companies can use AI, then that puts startups at a disadvantage. If only, you know, the developing world doesn't have access to AI, that's a big issue. But Catherine, how realistic is that? Because you've been in this field for (laughs) for many years, right? And similar to what we were going to talk about now, which is, you know, uh, to what extent are chatbots becoming real and what does real mean and can they be used for health, which is really serious stuff. But before we get to that debate, you know, it's, might as well have the debate about this uh, this thing around GPT-3 and, and other types of AI. I mean, is it, yeah, I mean, is it? I think that we have a bunch of issues that are not, one is that I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about AI globally and everywhere. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. But, but uh, I guess I I was almost forgetting the question, but, but what I was saying is, is it a threat, real threat that AI can move so fast in one country or in one or type of organization? Like let's, you you were just saying large organizations versus startup. Uh I mean, Yes, in in one paradigm where data, for instance, is at a premium, clearly if you don't own the data, you're at a disadvantage. So that's one yeah. thing, you know, release the data so that people can work on that. Yeah. Um, but are there other reasons why larger players would be, or smaller players rather, would be disadvantaged? And, and you, you can't just apply, you know, two, two smart uh, people in a garage can no longer compete with large large player. Is there any scenario where that, uh, you know, is not going to be the case anymore. So, they they because they were saying that about Google. You know, you can never catch Google. But now, of course, plenty of people have caught Google. You know, Amazon arguably caught Google, right, in product search, uh, at least for what they're selling. Many, many other apps. And, and you sort of, isn't this just the logic of the computer world that we are so worried that others can't catch up? But by the time regula- regulators have gotten onto this challenge, the market has caught up. So I, I'm just wondering, is this something that people make up to to sort of say that this is more important than than it is of a challenge? Or is it real? Is Microsoft and big tech now controlling us? I think that the real challenge is around innovation and what spurs and builds innovation. And I'm going to get pretty real here, honestly, because Right now, a lot of AI and to build a to build an AI company, to build an innovative AI company, you pretty much have to build it on the backbone of somebody. And sure. so that could be AWS, it can be Microsoft, it can be anything out there. And at that point in time, you reach a level where you um, are using their services, you're using their compute, right? It would be prohibitive for me in any number of the things that I'm doing. Half the innovations we came up with at Digital Intuition were because we didn't have a lot of GPUs, right? And we needed to approach things differently. And so I think it can be tremendously a tremendous innovation catalyst to not have the resources. But once you build on these backbones, uh, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, et cetera, once you build into the ecosystems of IBM or something like that, you essentially become their kind of external innovation lab, right? And well, this is why startups have become so popular with these big companies, right? Yeah. There isn't the big yeah. company these days that doesn't have a kind of a yeah. friendly startup arm. Yep, exactly. And that friendly startup arm eventually fundamentally locks you in. Yeah. to that company. Uh, and then, you know, it becomes very hard to, to pull the AI startup away from the company. But how realistic then is a concept like OpenAI in and of itself in providing a counter to, to that specific challenge? We saw OpenAI take GPT-3 over to Microsoft to commercialize it. So I think that answers that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Right. Well, exactly, because you know, eventually, the well, the, the problem is there's big money in it, so the temptation is is big, but but also, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of maintain that 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 perspective all, all the way through, and it's very hard to run an independent marketplace. You know, I was I did some consulting work with a couple of companies that were at times thinking about how do you run an independent AI marketplace for startups. Yeah. It's real hard. It's real hard. And, you know, but talk to me about federated learning, Catherine, because that has been touted as like, <laughs> this is the solution to everything. Because now, yeah, of course, someone will still own the data, but at least you're not sharing the data. So that's a solution for a couple of things, right? It's for the keeping the privacy of the people who have not given up the data so that anyone can buy it. But it also 
presumably also starts to fix this uh, big versus small uh, idea to to some extent. I mean, it, federation does loosen up the system, doesn't it? I think that it also allows us to tackle problems. And yes, but it allows us to tackle problems that were different than the problems we'd be able to tackle otherwise. Um, because let's actually go to healthcare as a really good example of this, right? So let's say you are working on building drugs for a rare disease, right? Um, so you, right now, if you wanted to go do that, you would have to go inside of one hospital system and any one hospital system does it, or even treatment plans for rare disease. They don't have enough people with this disease to really have any good idea of how to treat that, right? But if you were able to securely build a tiny model inside each one of, say, the 24, however many NHS trusts there are, which is the way the NHS system works and the data works, you could build those models. And then you could build a model across all of them without looking in the box of any one of those individual patients or individual hospitals you could get a really good cohesive idea of what's going on in these patients and be able to think about treatment in the way that you've been before. And I think being anything that can cut down the sort of go-to-market cost for treating things that tend to be places where they, they aren't the big ticket drugs and there isn't as much of an economic incentive to build towards them. I think if we can solve that problem, it's really big. I agree with you, Catherine, but isn't the problem then that similar to any other computing debate where big tech, of course, outwardly yep. are all in favor of some layers of interoperability, but at the end of the day, one does have to protect a little bit the, the strength that you started with. So I can even imagine yep. like a big academic hospital and uh, they're saying, well, yes, we should uh, experiment a little with federated learning. But after all, our big advantage is that not only do we have a lot of doctors, but we have a lot of patients, which means we can work on rare diseases because we are the only ones that have a patient population of larger than 10 for this particular rare disease. Yeah. Now, if you start federating that data out and saying, hey, this massive, uh, you know, we have the world's biggest data set on, on these uh, 19 rare diseases. Come look at our data. I mean, right. th there's a problem there with the business model eventually, isn't there? I, I think the healthcare data becomes very interesting. Yes, and I think it ties into the other problem, right? Which is that there is a great push for, again, big tech to get as much data, as much data access as they possibly can. And there's not as much of an incentive for anyone to share that data. And I wouldn't want to share that data. I would want Google to have my health record. That would personally, I'm a little bit of a privacy person. That would personally freak me out a lot, right? Um, but, you know, we want to see, well, what happens when you take your Livongo and you stick it to your 23andMe or you take your Apple Watch data and you put it together with your health record, you know, and there's a tremendous idea that you can you might want the outputs of that. You might want to know the information that's contained within, but also you might want to protect your privacy. And I think there has to be a solution that bridges that gap. And I think this kind of thing is really the only thing that would let that kind of thing happen. But in the case where you do have enough data by yourself within a hospital, I think then that's absolutely something they want to be doing. They want to be out there like, the Oxford collaborations that have been somewhat fruitful recently, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with that. But over at Oxford, they're also doing the model that, that we're talking about. They just don't have the federated learning yet because I don't think it's 100% ready for prime time, honestly. So how did you get into health as a use case, Catherine? Because you've been working on uh, market research. You were yep. helping all kinds of consumer yep. companies with their product problems. And then we're going to talk about this in a second. Then you're interested in entertainment. Of course, there are so many use cases for your yeah. skills. Uh, but you moved on a little from sort of Luminosa. You had commercialized or are starting to commercialize something new. How did you get to healthcare as like, this is um, interesting. Uh, was it COVID that sort of spurred this? Or, or have you been intrigued by the, you know, healthcare as a space in, in other ways? I've been looking at healthcare as a space uh, before. I think we had done a little bit of work looking at doctor-patient communication at the lab, uh, trying to understand whether or not the basically bedside manner affects outcomes, which is the sort of holy grail that you would not believe there has been. There's wonderful research for up to about three months out. But when you think about over the lifetime of a patient, we don't have that, 
we can't prove that right now. And you know it's true, and I know it's true, and actually proving that it's true could help improve the health system in a lot of ways, right? So we had been looking at that, honestly, when we were interested in speech acts and dialogue and things like that. Interesting. Uh, and, and, and what was the barrier yeah. to doing research on bedside manner? What, what was the problem? No one has collected uh, any data on it? Yes, actually, yes. There's no data. It's like, no data. There's yeah. no microphone at the bedside, essentially. Right, exactly. And there are places where they've done that. The Brown University, uh, Dr. Ari Wilson's research group does that. There's some folks at Hopkins who have done things like that. And they've measured, they call the patient two weeks out, they call the patient three weeks out. And they get really interesting results there. Um, but you can only do that for so long. I mean, it's a practicality. So the question is, well, how do you think about proving that for longer? But that's that's what we had started to look at uh, and we're looking at it again now. And so that's, I guess, how I got into that. Um, COVID was actually a part of it. You know, I'm going to be honest, right? I think we all sort of entered a phase where uh, we, we felt like I want to do something to make digital health take off. We had looked at digital health a lot uh, before COVID. Um, and had really you, you looked at influenza models as well, right? Diffusion yep. models of influenza yep. as well. Yep, we did that. We did... Um, we, you know, I mean, Luminoso obviously has healthcare clients who we're doing CX work with or market research work with. And we looked at a lot of things through that. We had worked with the CDC on doing, I'm very interested in what happens on social media. We looked at the, uh, the CDC looking at whether or not we can use what is technically called open source signals. And so people talking on social media to track uh, potential epidemics. And this is like 2010. So well, before that, and that was very surreal in the modern world, um, you know, and, and trying to look at that kind of stuff. So I suppose that was that was something else. We had looked at engagement as a problem in digital health uh, pretty early on. So when you there's when you think about it, digital health has a lot of promise, especially sort of the long term care uh, behavior change guiding digital health. Uh, but it has a bunch of different issues. Um, and one of those issues that was really apparent maybe about a year ago, even before the pandemic, was churn rate. Um, and, you know, what, what gets called adherence. And there was a result that, maybe I could look it up and link to it, but a great result that looked at a meta-study of all these clinical trials of of prescribed digital therapeutics, prescribed digital apps that said the effective churn rate out of the clinical trial is almost 50%, which is ridiculous. If you're in a clinical trial and you just stop doing it, that's a really high number. Um, yeah, and it's very expensive because it takes so perfect. much to recruit people to, to yeah. trials, for sure. Exactly. But it also <laughs> takes a lot of people to recruit recruit people into Mavongo, to recruit people into Noom or Talkspace or any of these things, right? And people leave. And, and if we can think about engagement, we can keep people in these programs and we can make them accessible to more people. And then we can help with, uh, you know, pre-diabetes patients, getting, getting people's health on track. We can help with at-risk pregnancies. You can make a real impact. And I think that's very compelling to start understanding what you can, you know, I, I love entertainment. I love customer experience, but there's real impact here. And I think that's motivational. So, so then bring me into your mind space then. So you start looking at this application set um, and, and there are so many separate areas that are trying to use behavioral incentives and some yeah. combination of messages. And they're not all, they're not all chat based, but they're definitely messages of some sort that are prompting patients to take these steps in, in the right manner. But, and, and there's this issue of, personalizing it obviously and and but then also kind of maintaining the attention over over time and the incentives is one of the problems also that there are so many i mean and and i don't want to speak out of turn there are so many startups but there are so many initiatives some of them from large players too that is a little confusing right for for a patient because you know you may have that one disease but then people are coming at you with all these apps and you know how apps work suddenly your app store, you know, on your phone just yep. fills up with all these things. And you're like, yep. which of these are connected to my true hospital care? Which of them are really yep. just wellness apps that are very well-meaning, but, you know, because you, you can't invest your time in all this. And then these things start beeping and you're like, okay, <laughs> so now my life is full of more noise, right? Yep. 
So, yeah. so th this is a real issue on the patient side as well. I mean, it's consumer-based healthcare, but there's a point where this is just noise. It's a so huge that's the negative. If you, if you don't pick the right things, they're not going to do all those things that you just said. They're, they're not going to improve your health. No. And I mean, I think that's completely a point. And I think we are in real danger of that happening. And I mean, there's even a, a deeper issue in digital health as a whole, which is that there is in, in healthcare, you, you talk about something called comorbidity, which means that a lot of serious diseases occur with a lot of other serious diseases. And if you end up in a situation where um, you have one app for one and one app for the other, and one app tells you to do one thing and one app tells you to do another thing, how is that supposed to work, right? Yeah, and it's not necessarily much better than, you know, taking 10 medications for, for different things that start to interact. I mean, you know, you, you can say, oh, digital therapeutics, it's so safe and it's all wonderful because it's digital. These are real, there are real consequences. One app says, you know, go to the left. The other one says, go to the right. You can't do both. Right, right. And that, that and especially apps that think about dosing and things like that, it needs to be more cohesive and everything is its own little app. And I think this is a chatbot problem in general. You know, if we think about the way chatbots work in, you know, with WeChat, <laughs> to be absolutely candid, you know, every financial service organization in China it has a bot that lives on WeChat. But as much as Facebook Messenger wants to be that for chatbots in the U.S., it is not. Um, and now every single thing you deal with that is a conversational agent has its own little app. And that you can see the numbers on how that affects and with healthcare, it has real consequences. So I think there has to eventually be something that is a digital pharmacy that thinks about itself as a digital pharmacy, where it's curating, ideally curating some of the stuff to stop the beeping, but also making sure that, you know, when things don't agree with each other, there's a human being to fall back on. And I think that's that has to happen. It has to be important. Um, so okay. that, that makes sense. Uh, is it a technology problem or is it more kind of uh, uh, organizing the, the different players type of, of, of problems and aligning these incentives? I think you can, when you come in, and one of the things that I learned doing this is that when you come in, I did like 45 interviews, right, with, with people all over the spectrum of, of healthcare from, you know, the PBMs, pharmacy benefits managers, all the way down to the drug manufacturers, to the health plans, et cetera. And you come in and you notice right away what's going on with technology and that technology and technology adoption is fundamentally different in healthcare than it's everywhere else. You know, at a certain point, many more things are built in-house. Many more things have to line up with one or two major EHR players. There are technology issues and there are technology delivery issues, right? People get very frustrated with these systems. They look like Lotus Notes. Um, they do, they really do. And, you know, and everybody is very frustrated. There are pipelines and major insurers that we heard about where one person takes a message, they copy it into a Slack channel, and then somebody else somewhere else in the organization takes the message out of the Slack channel and copies it into another piece of software. This actually happens at a big insurer. Uh, and we heard many things at that level. So there is a technology problem, and there's a platform problem, and there's an integration problem, but it turns out there's also a non-technology. And I think... Everyone is so frustrated with the technology problem that it takes you to really, really talking to them for a long time to understand that the non-technology problem is just as big. And it's, we have a lot of different players in healthcare. They all have different incentives and trying to figure out whose problem something is really, really is an issue. Um, so tell me, because, you know, this almost makes me uh, depressed on behalf of digital health because, you know, this year was a massive year for digital yeah. health. And one would think, it's exploding and it's all going to happen now, finally. But on the other hand, it's tempering that we're having this discussion because you kind of have to realize that it's, it isn't just a technology problem and venture capital can spew all of the money they want into this problem, but you cannot fix it overnight just by a more clever app here and there. Uh, the entire system needs to sort of move along because it, it would be maybe too convenient to think that digital health is that only is that killer app that can kind of chip at the structures without needing to change the structure because at the outset it can like i can download this mm -hmm. i can be helped with mm -hmm. whatever disease from that one mm -hmm. app so individually it is so alluring but on a system level yeah we I still mean, maybe this whole thing just leads to the whole animal or healthcare collapsing because it becomes so complex that 
even actors who have vested interest in keeping the system, for them, it becomes unmanageable. I mean, is that really the solution here? That's kind of like the, it's the backdoor into innovation, I guess. Just blow it up from, from the amount of innovation. Because, you know, the only alternative here, Catherine, would be that someone really starts to structure this process in some way on a business side. I think they, like we have to realign incentives. All of you guys go over here. You guys go over there. Let's have a meeting and a powwow and figure out. And and then, you know, let's go back and, you know, like there isn't, this can't, doesn't seem like it's a problem that is going to just naturally evolve. I think it's, there's, I think a couple of things have happened. One of which is that the beautiful, the, we discovered a lot of pathways to make innovation happen in healthcare faster over the past six to seven. And I think that's something, and some things worked and some things didn't. And that was. Tell, and tell me what, what you see the major pathways being. I mean, I think that when we think about funding uh, for science and for healthcare, um, a lot of the red tape around it and a lot of the preamble around it uh, was eliminated and came up with the results. I think we were able to build a vaccine in a ridiculously short amount of time and we were able to build many vaccines in a ridiculously short amount of time. Yeah, but do you think that's ever going to happen again? Don't you think that window just closed and people are like, hey, we did that, but that was very special. Don't even <laughs> think about that other medicine. Yep, but that's the question. And I think to some degree with with digital health, I think we're, the, I think the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think you can put it back because I think there's a pressure from employers at this point, right? Like an employer is used to an employee taking a half day off to go to the doctor's office for a 10 minute interaction, right? And I think that has never made any sense. It doesn't make any sense for me as a patient and certainly doesn't make any sense for my employer. And my employer has a lot of power to say, hey, look, we're not gonna have go back to the system where everybody has to walk into the office for this tiny short visit. Also, why is the visit so short? What can we do to you know help doctors have more time to actually interact with their patients like they used to? All of these problems. So I think in some part we have, you know, shown like all of the innovation. You're right. It's a very crowded space. There's a lot of froth right now in digital health. But I think coming out of that is an understanding that we didn't have six months ago of where some of the growing pains are going to be for digital health, right? And I think it was an interesting thought. You prompted yeah. something in my head. What is your opinion? Would you rather? <laughs> would you rather? So I have kids, right? Would you rather? Would yes. you rather have a 10-minute face-to-face uh, annual checkup or would you have a 30 or 45, let's call it 45 minutes online checkup with your health provider? Followed by, obviously, if there's a problem, you need to do something, but that's given anyway. Right. Which one would you choose? I mean, as an employer, it's an easy question. Yes. Because... Uh, uh, you know, employee drives or walks or takes the bus home, 45 minutes pass by, or, or in America, I think an average of one hour goes by. Employee travels to health site, another hour, yeah. you know, half an hour goes by and then travels back, eats, yeah. tries yeah. to go back to work again. I mean, yeah, half day, I think you're being generous for many hospital or many oh, yeah. smaller visits. Yeah, 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 yeah. But for the employee, it may not be as straightforward as that. But but maybe the trade-off is, you know, I mean, yeah. If you have I, you I triple the time face to, you know, online. Maybe it's not even a lot of time at one time. Maybe it's a couple of different check-ins, right? If I'm... Well, and that's where the digital health comes in, right? Because it, with many of these more advanced app systems, it's it's not a check-in. And that I guess that's the whole point. It's a stretched so with chronic diseases, you stretch right. out the care in time. Yep. It doesn't matter. Like I could talk to you for 10 minutes, but my condition wouldn't manifest itself in, in 10 minutes. Yeah. Or, or, you know, if you are, you go off, you start to try to do, you know, some healthy behavior change, you have more questions along the way. You want to go back and ask those questions, yep. right? Having somebody you can ask those questions to without all the rigmarole is, I think, something that's really important. I think if we get change the culture so we can continuously think about improving our health we end up in a place that is much better and i think it's an access question right whereas you or i might when you said we're stretching it right to to say it's only a half day 
what if you're in the rural area? What if you're in a place that doesn't have medical care close by? It becomes a much bigger or, issue. Or what if they their alternative or their reality is that they're, they're going to some doctor who has never seen a rare disease? Because if you are in a rural area, you have never seen enough yeah. rare diseases. That's just factual, statistically. Yeah. So the alternative is you're talking to a medical professional that sees a lot of rare diseases. Yeah, the difference is, is, is huge. So right. what have you looked at or, or done when it comes to analyzing the same sort of data that you did with Luminoso? So could, could you analyze, well, bedside manner, I realized you, you said that would be important, but what about these new kind of online calls? It would seem to me that these new sort of COVID health checkups would be a treasure trove, which no one probably is looking at because it's so new and it's just like HIPAA compliant and it's like hidden in in some, uh, you know, encrypted Zoom. Uh, I had it on Zoom, right? Like when I talked to my doctor for my checkup, yeah, we just Zoomed like you and I are Zooming right now. Without uh, the HIPAA filter because they have a HIPAA compliant <laughs> part. There was no HIPAA. I don't know. Maybe there was, and I just didn't know about it, but it was certainly something where it was like, not, not. Yeah. Well, I've understood that they do encrypt, but I think I thought that was a special portal, but regardless, uh, all of that stuff is starting to now exist. That data is going to start to emerge. Is it possible with current NLP to make a lot of sense of that? Because it's more advanced than just products shipping back. I mean, we're talking wildly different conversations here. Right. That you know, you could be telling, you could you could think that you're talking about one condition, and the doctor in their mind sh- are, are thinking she is describing a onset of dementia here, yeah, right, 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 or something completely different. Mm-hmm. So, how advanced are we in terms of understanding conversations about disease? I think that that is conversations about disease. I think that there is definitely a place where a human being is going to do much better than a machine. Uh, and I think there are parts of the conversation where that's not necessarily the case, right? Like if I'm in talking to somebody about the way they're feeling pain or the way they're feeling something else, that's, that's something that's much more automatable than the sort of intuitive parts. And so I think it's really at this point, I don't like replacing people with machines. I like having a co-pilot that's type model. You, you, it's an au- augmentation model. So it's like yep. there's always going to be humans yep. in this decade involved in, in these conversations, but it is yep. augmenting it, coming up with like, I read all of the patient conversations you had this week. Here are some observations I made, uh, dear doctor, right? So the machine speaking to, to the doctor, basically. And you think that's realistic, that there are going to be findings already at this stage, potentially? I think there's potentially really things that can be done to understand some of this conversation. And I think just like a lot of uh, understanding the drivers within a conversation to external KPIs, I think you can do that kind of stuff today. And some of that might be how much did you listen to your patient? How much active listening did you do? Right. And these are all things that can make a difference because a patient often walks out of the doctor's office having no idea what's going on or not the same place as the doctor. And I mean, even if we can improve that, we don't need to get into the depth of diagnosing. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying even just, an, an, a, you know, understanding kind of behavioral cues and, and yeah. kind of giving cool. feedback on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that becomes, that can become very important. I have one one more question uh, that I wanted to ask you about. You, you've gotten into avatars and sort of animation as, as part of structuring a, a conversation. Tell me about that because we've talked all of this time about chat, but mm-hmm. the visual component is something that people also miss. Yes. And there are technologies, you know, now starting with, of course, sci-fi, uh, you know, with like all of these holograms and things. Where are we with that? How real is this? That you're actually going to have any kind of value, <laughs> these sort of virtual representations yeah. that, is it is it oh. helping? Or is it moving radically forward this these days with uh, digital avatars? There are three parts to a digital avatar, one of which is the physical animation of the face that's talking, one of which is the voice uh, sometimes which needs to sound like something and the third one of which is what's going on inside the, the head, right? The conversational structure, the conversational style. And they're in very different places. 
I think the effects community and the digital effects community are starting to really get someplace when it comes to being able to understand the physicality of the animation. I think we're seeing a lot of more realism around that kind of avatar. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in certain cases, speech is getting better and that's great. We're starting to use speech to do things like uh, if someone has, say, voice box cancer, being able to preserve their voice to allow it to sound like them later on, um, we're able to do things like that. I think it's the actual brains of these things are not where the, the visual is at all. And I think that's something that people are starting to notice is an issue and it's going to have to be something we have to address. Look, I'll, I'll link up. This is fascinating stuff. And it's... Uh... It is moving, it's fast and slow. And I guess that's the annoying thing with technology is that the deeper you go, you realize you, you can't always run, right? You can, you can dig deep and, and then some, some things are actually com complex yeah. and justifiably so. These, and these are not things that you can machine your way through with even three smart MIT brains, right? It's not a problem <laughs> that can be computed in, a, in, in that sense. It's, these are things you got to kind of navigate your way through. But uh, yeah. very interesting that you are, Thinking about and applying, you know, your your skill set now to these sort of medically relevant conversations, I find find that fascinating. Thank you for for sharing your observations. And thank you for having me. This has been great. You have just listened to episode eighty two of the Futurized podcast with host Ronan Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of digital health, and our guest was Catherine Havasi, CEO and co-founder of Delong Health. In this conversation, we talked about patient experience telehealth and personalizing digital health. We discussed the AI space, crowdsourcing for AI, word embeddings, transfer learning, and multilingual NLP, machine learning, and federated learning. We talked about chronic disease management and the exciting applications that include health coaching, mHealth chatbots, agent assists, augmentation, and scaling personalization. We explored perspectives on the future. My takeaway is that digital health AI must emerge, but only when we are sure the software truly works. For now, what we have is scattered machine learning applications that approximate meaning and compute fairly mindlessly. Hyper-personalized health will indeed depend on AI, but the tech will only succeed if its developers realize that life is complex, people are different, and there was a reason healthcare has been somewhat tailored to each person in a manual fashion. Behavioral health apps are great, but need to be integrated into the health system in an interoperable manner before it can have its true effect on population health and individual health outcome. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 55, AI for Medicine, episode 19 on digital health in future pandemics, and episode 26, how to write a book on the future of healthcare. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.